0: Hi, my name is Peter Beinart. I'm uh, a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and really, really thrilled to be joined today for this uh, discussion of the Occupied Thoughts podcast by Mark Lamont Hill and Mitchell Plitnik. Mark is the Steve Charles Professor of Media, Cities, and Solutions at Temple University, the host of BET News and Upfront with Al Jazeera and the Coffee and Books podcast. Mitchell is president of Rethinking Foreign Policy. And uh, we're here because they are um, they've published a book uh, called Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics, that I'm really excited to talk with them about. Um, but before we delve into the the argument of the book, um, uh, I think a lot of people will be interested in you as co-authors and your journeys to write this book together. So I thought I would start start with you, Mark, just by asking how you came to be so invested uh, in this subject.
1: That's a that's a great question, and the question that I <laughs> that I get quite often, although typically there's a sinister, you know, a sinister (laughs) belief about it attached to it. It's not really a question
0: (laughs) or a tacit
1: assertion of, 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 you know. Um, So I have long been uh, someone interested in um, questions around the Middle East. Um, My sort of initial entry point was Malcolm X. Um, I am a lifelong reader. Uh, actually, behind me is the, the autobiography of Malcolm X. It's a book that that literally changed my life. Um, and one of the things that Malcolm did for me was he forced me to think internationally and to think about the interconnection um, of our, our various struggles. Um, and of course, Malcolm X visited Palestine twice in 1959 and again in 1964. Um, and he had some very interesting analyses of this. And of course, the, Dr. King's a hero of mine. He traveled to what he called the Holy Land, uh, and then was planning to return uh, in '68. But he, in March, after the Six Day War, he had some reservations. Um, he had some critiques of of what had happened in that June um, um, of '67. And so he was um, a hero of mine that had me thinking about that about. Israel, Palestine, in particular, Malcolm had written a, an article called "On Zionist Logic" that had me thinking about these interconnections. Um, and I was also, um, as an anthropologist, very interested in the question of race and how and where how race and culture operate in various parts of the world. I, I was interested in African people wherever they were. There's Afro-Brazilians, there's Afro-Iraqis, you know, there's Afro-Japanese, and of course, there are Afro-Palestinians. Um, and so I, I was always fascinated with these Afro-Arab connections. Um, in addition to the solidarity stuff, things really took a heavy turn for me though after Ferguson. I was already thinking about these issues; they were already in the background. I had, I had long been talking about issues around the Middle East when I was at CNN. You know, I, I, I'd be debating Dershowitz sometimes with you uh, there as my big brother for backup. You know, um, and, and, and 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 then uh, and and and. Uh, you know, at HuffPost, you know, we would cover international stories. So these were always things that I was sort of thinking about. Um, but then uh, in Ferguson, I, I, I was forced to really think about it in different ways. I encountered a great deal of Palestinians on the ground marching. Uh, there was a lot of solidarity talk. Uh, there was the Ferguson to Palestine kind of uh, narrative going on. There were the instructions we were getting from Palestinian activists in the West Bank um, about how to, you know, cover our eyes, how to protect ourselves. Uh, when tear gas comes, et cetera. And so from that moment, I went on a delegation to Palestine. You know, I had spent a, a decent amount of time in the Middle East anyway, you know, Jordan, uh, Egypt, etc. cetera. Uh, but I hadn't, I hadn't visited uh, the West Bank. I hadn't visited Gaza. I hadn't visited uh, East Jerusalem and I hadn't been to Israel. Um, and so my first trip out there, I began to see things and I began to connect um, and that did two things for me one it introduced me to the afro-palestinian community where i would who i've been working with and interviewing and studying uh not just as a kind of abstract thing but as an as an empirical study sense um but it also forced me to think about some of the politics and policies on the ground uh in a different way and um since then i've been active more actively engaged with solidarity work but also thinking about what it means to be a u.s citizen spending tax money um supporting policies or supporting politicians who support policies that are not producing peace and justice in the region uh and i also was so intrigued by this and wanted to sort of bolster my knowledge when i went back to graduate school um and uh you know pursued a a, a graduate degree in middle east studies um so, and with a thesis focus on israel palestine and specifically on the afro Palestinian question, the question of race in in Israel-Palestine, so that I could really drill down on this um, and learn more, but also have a kind of disciplined study. So my interest comes from my academic research, it comes from my political research, it comes from my history, um, and it comes from just a deep engagement as an American citizen with our policies,
0: you know. I'd say among the many parts of that that are extraordinary, the fact that you were a tenured professor and basically have four other jobs, decided to go (laughs) back to get it to, to, to graduate school because you wanted to learn more about another subject, it's, uh, um, wow, that's, that's um, uh, remarkable. Um, uh, Mitchell, so t- talk, uh, talk to us about, about, how, about how you came to this. Well, um,
2: you know, for me it started pretty early in that I was raised Orthodox Jewish in New York, uh, you know, educated in yeshiva and um, obviously in a very pro-Israel uh, extremely pro-Israel environment. Um, so much so I, I often tell people, uh, when I was a kid at, at, uh, one, one Shabbos, uh, uh, I met at his, uh, at his house, a friend's house, um, uh, the now late Rabbi Meir Kahana. So this was the, um, this was the atmosphere in which I was raised. Uh, one that had, uh, a strong helping, a very, I would say almost fanatical uh, support for Israel, which meant that the story I got was that Israel never did anything wrong, uh, was always an innocent victim. And, and I have to say, that's not a great strategy uh, in in my opinion, because when you teach that to a little kid, one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to have somebody who just blindly believes that or as was in my case, you can have someone that says, there's got to be something wrong with this story. Um, and and by the time I was a teenager, uh, I, I started exploring that question of what was really going on in Israel, Palestine. And so we're talking about now the, the early 1980s. Um, and uh, I did not become active on this issue until the late 90s, uh, uh, just actually a year or two before September 11th. Um, and the reason for that was, um, I was not only unlearning so much of what I'd learned, but I was, I, I really felt like I had to delve into uh, what is the right and wrong of this? It was not, for me, it was not an easy question. It was not something that was easy to resolve. Uh, uh, where uh, where, where I wanted to go, what, what was I, if I was going to become active on this issue, what was I gonna promote? Um, it took me many, many years uh, of both independent study and study in the academy. So uh, I got my degree in Middle Eastern studies and did uh, an honors thesis on um, Israeli and Jewish historiography uh, that focused a lot on the new new historians in Israel, which is a sort of wave of uh, Jewish Israeli historians in the late 80s uh, who questioned the traditional narrative and emphasized more, of what really happened in, particularly in 1948 and with the creation of uh, uh, creation of Israel and the accompanying pal- massive amount of Palestinian refugees that that came out of that. and uh, most of these people incidentally, are you know our Zionist historians? Uh, whatever you know, Elon Pape is an anti-Zionist, but but most of his fellows would not uh, identify that way. Certainly, you have some. Uh, possibly, the most notable of that group was Benny Morris, who is uh, you know, I, I would consider quite right-wing. Somebody who advocates the idea that yes, the uh, Ben Gurion, David Ben Gurion, uh, created the Palestinian refugee problem, but he didn't go all the way, and that's the problem that uh, he didn't get rid of all the Palestinians. So um, uh, going through all of this stuff um, for many years and watching as the Palestinian uh, movement for Palestinian rights grew over the years, too, was, uh, was very impactful for me. Uh, when the first Intifada happened, uh, you know, I was already a young man. And uh, the way Palestinians were discussed went through a radical change in the United States. Mainstream media actually showed Palestinians as human for the first time that I was aware of. Uh, At that time, and I started hearing more and more Palestinian stories and really uh, spent uh, uh, many years trying to balance the humanity of both sides. And how do we get to a place uh, 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 where that humanity does strike a balance. So, um, you know, I studied, I learned, I became active with Jewish Voice for Peace in the late 90s. and uh, you know, uh, it made it my career once I got out of uh, once I got my undergraduate degree. So um, uh, I, I've been doing that now for you know for around 20 years. And um, one of the things that became important to me uh, as I went through this journey was a, re- a recognition that I'm an American Jew. I am not an Israeli, certainly, obviously not a Palestinian. Um, and so my focus became American policy in the region. Uh, and how that can change into something that's more productive uh, and more positive. And it's not an easy question, given the strange politics around us that we have. So um, through various uh, different routes and journeys, um, I came to a place where uh, you know, I, I felt like my direction had to be uh, using my background and my, my identity as well as my education and my personal uh, passion uh, towards changing U.S. policy in the region and hope, hoping that that would bring about the, the justice and the peace that we
0: all want in Israel-Palestine. That's great. I mean, what I find fascinating about this is not just the way you both individually have challenged kind of boundaries about who's allowed to engage on this subject, Uh, in in your case, Mark, and and Mitchell, in your case, how Jews are allowed to engage in this subject. Um, But that also that together, it seems to me you challenge the boundaries of the way we talk about Black Jewish uh, relations, and that there's this extreme now becoming you think about the way people keep talking about Warnock and Ossoff in this highly sanitized way. You know about yeah. Yes, it's great when blacks, blacks and Jews get together to struggle for progressive principles, but only in this very kind of only in, in a, only within certain limits, right? Um, uh, and along with certain things aren't really aren't really challenged. And I think to me it seems to me you both collectively are challenging those boundaries about about what actually it means when Blacks and Jews come together for progressive causes in, in ways that um, don't always make people as comfortable. So um, uh, I find it really intriguing and exciting. Um, um, but I know, but we're here to talk about the book. So um, Mark, let's, let's just go back to you. You wanna just try to kind of summarize the basic uh, idea of the, of the book?
1: You know, there, there's long been in the activist community, this critique of those people uh, who you know have been called uh, Peps, you know, progressive, except for Palestine, et, et, et cetera. Um, and Mitchell and I were were thinking about them um, in a way, but but more importantly, we were we were thinking about from an American perspective: how can we intervene in the conversation? What's from our unique vantage point, right? We're not. I'm not Palestinian. He's not an Israeli Jew. He's an American Jew, as he said. But how can we as Americans intervene in this conversation? what is our duty? what is our responsibility? where is our voice and and, and I think it's it's talking about American policy and, and our disposition toward that. We both identify as being on the left and you know left means different things to different people. Lib- some people identify as liberals, some are progressive, some are radical. but there seems to be within all of these circles this gap uh, for on, in the question of Palestine. There's a way that you know Donald Trump can, can speak out against migrant caravans and call them thieves and 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 separate people at borders and, and 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 do all sorts of harm and the left will be up in arms and you know later that same year we can have underworld funds cut um for, for, and for Americans the stakes are far lower on that question right i mean uh, at, at least if you're a nativist in Texas or the border, you could say, oh my God, they're even if you're a racist, you could say they're taking over our country, right? You could say it's our money, but but UNRWA, the kind of cold-hearted indifference that it takes to say we're gonna cut money for education, housing, healthcare, et cetera, um, is stunning. And yet the American left said very little about that question. Um, when there are questions around free speech, when there are questions around policing the discourse, uh, around boycotting, around protesting, um, the left can get up in arms around certain issues, whether it's Hobby Lobby or or, or or whatever the issue is. But when it comes to BDS, it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe Yang's on to something here. Oh, wait, maybe these governors who are moving to criminalize uh, or, or, or at least penalize folk, um, you know, around, or, you know, who, who support BDS or the right to BDS. Um, suddenly that's a different question. Um, there's a way that we have exceptionalized Donald Trump. We've made Donald Trump a figure who is sort of uh, a villain in the question of Israel-Palestine. And and, and there's certainly reasons to criticize Donald Trump. But we can frame him, we tend to frame him in a way that's exceptional and ignores the fact that so much of the policy that we've seen that has done harm in the region or that has undermined the possibility of peace in the region has been bipartisan. an embassy move is one thing, but the Jerusalem Embassy Act is something that begins in 1995. You know, during during a Clinton presidency, and so there's and 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 every president has signed a waiver up until Trump about moving about about moving the embassy, but no one has pushed back, right? So there's a way that we have to keep we we have to be honest about the fact that there's been a bipartisan almost consensus on this question. Um, and finally, you know, there, there's there's probably no well, let me not say that. There are few greater crises, uh, ongoing crises than what we see in Gaza. Um, There was a prediction that Gaza would be uninhabitable by 2020. It's now 2021. And sadly, they were right. Um, And the lack of collective outrage um, is also stunning. Um, And so we wanted to track those issues, among others, um, and 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 help think through one point out these contradictions between our ostensible values as as, as leftists as progressives what our, what our, what we say we care about who we say we care about how we say we care about these things um, and then and then and then position that against what we're actually doing on the ground and, and and asking the question how did Palestine become the exception why is a specific issue coming up. Uh, and we do so in a way that looks to policy, right? We, we, we fl- And this is the last thing I'll say. We flatly reject the idea that this is about some Jewish cabal of power, right? Uh, we, we flatly reject the idea that this is about any of the other kind of anti-Semitic narratives that often circulate when we ask why this issue sometimes feels singular or feels exceptional. It's not that. It's about a set of policy arrangements. It's about a set of decisions. It's about a, polit- a set of political commitments that got us here. We want to figure out, how we got here, and then hopefully figure out how we can get out of this thing in a way that creates a lasting peace for everybody.
0: Um, um, so, Mitchell, let's just talk about, um, uh, I think, to, to understand, uh, to make the case that, um, uh, that, that progressives are not living their principles when it comes to Israel-Palestine, we have to establish some baseline about what it would look like if they were. So, so maybe just talk, Mish, a little bit about what you think a genuinely principled, progressive view on this subject, what would be the core, what would be the axioms, the fundamentals of it?
2: So I think the, the, most, the most fundamental we can get is to talk about, um, is, to, is to approach this from a, a starting point of equal rights for everyone. Um, And so this is this is part of why for two decades I have been arguing that this debate over one state or two state or however many states or no state is is largely a distraction, especially for those of us uh, living outside of the region. The the issue is not how many states the issue isn't even what the eventual solution looks like for us right now. Um, Our our function is to make sure that everyone's rights are protected, uh, because our function should be one of defending universal. And I think that's the key universal human rights. The uh, on the Israeli side, uh, in terms of Israelis as Israelis, they don't need a lot of help in this defense. Um, Their rights are secured by a powerful state. uh, an old friend and colleague of mine once argued to me that uh, that uh, the state structure is necessary because that is how uh, rights are secured. Um, in our system, I think that's true. I don't know that that's necessarily ideal, but um, I do think in the world we live in, that is how it works. So Israel has that. Palestine does not. Um, Palestinians do not. There's no a uh, reliable structure in which they can exercise their rights unhindered um, without, you know, if, if those rights are under attack by someone else. Israelis perceive their rights, rightly or wrongly, they perceive their rights as being under attack, but they have the means with which to defend them, uh, and they do. And that is that is the system that, that we work in. Palestinians do not have those means. So our approach should be to equalize that, uh, rather than to come in and and say, uh, Israel is our friend, our our unshakable ally. Therefore, we will stand with them. And you know, part of that is maybe also trying to uh, you know find some space for the Palestinians. Um, That is backwards. And I think it also speaks to the way, the the sort of opportunistic uh, way that the United States pursues foreign policy in general. And it's again, that comes back to why I think this issue is so important. I believe very strongly, not only in the sort of high-minded sense that if we found a resolution for this problem, I think it would imply uh, resolutions for problems all over the world. It would be a model. I'm not saying it would cause it overnight, but it would be a model for resolving vexing conflicts all over the world, because few are more vexing than this one, few are more complicated than this one. Uh, if you involve so many different aspects of religion and, and culture and history and politics. So I think if, we can re- if this one gets resolved, it becomes a model for, for, uh, for resolving issues all over the world. But more to the point, I think if, um, if the United States actually could adopt an even-handed approach because like it or not, you know, the, the, on the left, we often say U.S. out of the Middle East, U.S. out of here. US out, it's not going to happen. And and we should rethink whether or not it really should happen, because lack of U.S. involvement uh, is what we've seen in many places for the last four years. It hasn't worked out very well. Um, but what is the nature of that involvement? Uh, that is what I think really needs to change. And I think if it changes in this, on this issue, that really does imply change on a great many others. So it becomes more important. So uh, again, I come back to what it looks like is really very simple. It's, it is it um, is a US policy that, um, that fights for universal rights on an equal basis for everyone. The same thing that we fight for here. We don't have that here. And I'm not suggesting that somehow our foreign policy should be superior morally to our domestic policy. Um, Uh, Both go hand in hand, Uh, but we can't. And and again, this is why I think we aim this book at a particular audience. And that's the sort of liberal anyone to to the liberal side of the center, Um, which is that if you're fighting for justice and racial racial equality, gender equality, uh, sexual identity equality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that we fight for every day. If you're fighting for that domestically, you can't fight for it here expect to win if you're not also fighting for it in our foreign policy as well. So these things are intimately connected, uh, and you know it. So I think it is important that we stop. Trying to figure out in the United States and in Washington, how do we resolve this question? What does is Israel-Palestine look like when the occupation is over and all this? That's actually for Israelis and Palestinians to figure out. Um, what is for us to figure out is how we ensure that everyone has the same basic rights, whatever form that needs to take, uh, and that should be our politics domestically and in uh, and in foreign policy.
0: Um, I, think, I think it's, you know, j- just to say that the basic principle should be that uh, we see Jewish and Palestinian lives as equal itself, I think is, is so important because it, it actually forces people to, 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 to respond whether that actually is their principle or not. And as you know, Mitchell, and I know very well, many, many American Jews do not go into this conversation and not only American Jews, with that per- with that perspective. And I think if people are more honest about that, right, and people might say, honestly, look, the Jewish people are my people. I see them as an extension of my own family. I have a special commitment to, to them. But at least if one is then honest about that, it seems to me you can have a clarifying conversation and then about, about how that connects to progressivism and can that and how it connects to American policy. But very often that's not even, that's not really even acknowledged. Um, exactly. Mark, so you, you mentioned that you're an anthropologist. So, yeah. um, to me. Partly, what you all are doing is making a normative argument, but you're also trying to understand why this um, lacuna is there, right? Why, why this exception exists, and um, and admirably, you're you're doing so while being mindful of of avoiding, you know, stereotypes that uh, about Jewish power that that have been in a, in in certain circumstances been been used in dangerous ways. So, as a student of American politics and and of American culture. Um, Talk a little bit about why you think it is that people approach this question of, of, of Palestinians and Israel-Palestine differently than they do um, other questions where there are human rights involved.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with how arguments are framed, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how people are framed and how identities are framed. I always, I, I always tell, uh, even as a teacher, I would tell my students, you know, uh, you know, we don't say slaves were brought to America, we say people were brought to America and enslaved. Because when you say slaves are brought to America, it, it it forecloses on possibilities for how you can understand people, what they deserve, who they were, and what their histories were. Right? It, it forecloses on possibilities, and if we concede that from the beginning, then we lose some we lose in, in intellectual ground uh, and sometimes moral ground. Similarly, I think that some of the language and and we talk about this in the first chapter of the book um, that has been used to talk about these issues. Um, has foreclosed on possibilities for how people understand the problem. So when we say um, raising the question of the right to exist, the right to exist on its face seems like a very reasonable thing to demand of someone. Right? I want you to de- I want you to affirm my right to exist. Um, but what that language has done is it has carried with it the weight of certain presumptions and certain counterfactual sort of understandings of what's going on. You know, when people hear, does Israel have a right to exist? Oftentimes in everyday discourse, what people hear is do Israelis have a right to exist or do Jews have a right to exist? And of course, um, I would say, Mitchell would say, you would say, and I hope anyone with any shred of decency would say, of course they have a right to it. All human beings have a right to exist in safety, self-determination, peace with justice. Uh, that's not in question, but when when the discourse of the right to exist has emerged, and it's not always been the discourse, when it has emerged and become the kind of, a central even demand, um, what it does is it gives the presumption that all other nations have had their rights to exist affirmed with Israel being the lonely exception, which would be problematic, right? It also makes a presumption that states, not people, but states have a right to exist. I'm not talking about recognizing territorial integrity. I'm not talking about sovereignty. Those are important questions that we have to think about um, and that we have thought about in both uh big picture stuff, right? Post-World War II, also very specific to this area when we think about you know, UN resolutions, you know, 242, 338, et cetera. But but that's not what's at issue here. What's at issue here is a very specific question, which is uh, does Israel have a unique right to exist as a Jewish state? within the context of a conflict um, and, and a set of political arrangements that, that, that renders, just looking at in the state of Israel, the 17 and a half percent of Arab Israelis or Palestinian Israelis um, marginalized and, and, and without equal rights. Uh, even when it's facially neutral, the law clearly isn't, isn't fair. So that's just one example of how um, language um is is key to how we frame the argument but then how that becomes like a shibboleth of 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 the battle it's of 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 the of the political debate itself right that that in order for palestinians to do anything they have to affirm israel's right to exist right and 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 it becomes a conversation about zionism in in many ways right and and in the book by the way we make a very sort of we, we we were very intentional about saying we don't want this to be a debate about the legitimacy of Zionism as such. Um, There are many ways to be Zionist. Um, There are many different opinions of what Zionism is. You would identify as a cultural Zionist, which is a very different tradition uh, than than, than a kind of revisionist Zionist, a kind of Jabotinsky Zionist, versus even a sort of everyday liberal Zionist, right? That we might see, right? These are different conversations. We're also being honest about the fact that the dominant iteration of Zionism has been uh, this political Zionism. And we're saying, okay, given that, given the realities on the ground, Given what has happened, there for a Palestinian to concede to the legitimacy uh, and the need for there to be a, a, a Jewish state and a Zionist state in Israel is to is to, is to is to concede the fact that they won't exist. It's to concede the fact that they can't be there. But because that's become the normative claim, right? Do you affirm? It's 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 the it's the very first question you always get asked. It's the, it's the big trick question, right? It, do do you do you do you, do you agree with Israel's right to exist? Right. Um, and so. With that kind of a move, every no Democratic politician is going to say no. There's no room on a debate stage to say, "Well, it's complicated, right?" Because it sounds like you're being evasive or dodging the question. I don't even like getting the question because it, it it always puts you in a position where you seem like you're being anti-Semitic or denying the legitimacy of Jewish people. Um, right. What right. I always say, Israel has the exact same rights; should have all the exact same rights as all other states. Right. 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 Um, right. And, but but it's the discourse that comes up, right? We concede that BDS, I mean, we have people even who are running for office now who begin from the place of saying BDS is somehow not a normal form of protest, but that it's somehow a, a, a uniquely problematic thing. And so because the discourse, because we concede so much of that ground, right. there's no space to say, wait a minute, why? What, what, whether Mitch and I may not agree on BDS or not, we've never even fully hashed that out, but we've had many conversations about it. The, the question isn't whether BDS is good or not, it's whether you have the right to even consider it as, as a tactic or strategy. But we concede that ground too. And so for me, we've normalized uh, some very particular um, worldviews that, quite frankly, even Israelis themselves and even Zionists themselves have not always embraced. Right. I mean, the conversation about the right to exist. I mean, there was a moment where residents where say, who cares about whether right. or not the world affirms our right? We exist because we exist. Right. It's, it's axiomatic. We don't mm-hmm. we don't need the affirmation of the outside world. So 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 as the discourses have shifted, it's become much harder to have a, a good faith conversation or even a, a nuanced conversation because people don't realize how much ground they've conceded when they enter the conversation already. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It also strikes me as ironic that, you know, what you hear conservatives say in the United States is fundamentally that the rights of individuals are axiomatic, right? And states only exist to serve the rights of individuals and that we mm-hmm. should be aware, we should be fear state power in and of itself. Right. You know, and, you know, um, and yet here the, the conversation becomes about the state's right to exist rather than about the individual's right to exist and whether the state is serving that. Um, right. um, Mitchell, I want to I want to ask you to respond to a counter argument that I'm sure you've heard, you know, probably since you were practically in the womb, um, which is a a kind of a different kind of exception argument. It it basically goes something along the lines of, why is the UN so focused on those Palestinians? After all, look at all those other people around the world who are suffering. How How many protests are there in the United States about the people in Western Sahara? So ergo, this is motivated by anti-Semitism because th- why else would they be focusing so much on the bad things that Israel may or may not be doing when there's so many other things that are at least as bad around the world? So this is a kind of a completely different way of making the exception argument than, than you are making. Um, and I wondered how you, how do you respond to it?
2: Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think what's important to, to acknowledge is that there, while there are many many horrible things in the world and many of them the united states is somewhat involved in um, this one is actually unique in the sense that the united states really goes out of its way to enable it um just just for one of many many examples just go back about um, oh i guess it's six six or seven years ago when um the united nations um uh came up with a resolution that almost verbatim echoed US policy on the settlements and their expansion and the this is not the Donald Trump administration the uh, Barack Obama uh vetoed that resolution and it was literally US policy being encoded in a in a United Nations resolution uh there was the the some of the wording was slightly different but there was literally no daylight between the two Uh, between U.S. policy and and that resolution, and yet Obama vetoed it. Um, That shows a level of enabling of of Israeli action that is unusual. And that's why I think as Americans, we do need to specifically speak out uh, on this on this issue, because it's one it's one where we have a lot more potential to make a difference, and we're a lot bigger part of the problem. So that's one part of it. Another part is that um, you know the fact is Palestinians have come to us for help in a very specific way. So you know, Mark brought up BDS, and again, whatever you think of BDS, uh, BDS is a call from Palestinians. So this is one of the examples that you often use as Israel being singled out. You know, why don't we boycott this country or that country? Um, so one thing is that, again, uh, Israel is, very, uh, is one of very few countries that an American boycott would really hit hard and really could, re- could theoretically really affect policy. Um, you know, boycotting uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, would be much less practical um, and yet, you know, we saw, you know, not not very long ago, we saw a bill with majority support in Congress uh, to change our relationship with Saudi Arabia, something we would never, you know, we have not seen with Israel. So it isn't true that among even our allies, Israel is uniquely uh, singled out. But Palestinians have called on us to to do this, uh, to take these actions. So I think that, um all of that makes a a makes Israel different. Um, And I think fundamentally when people say, well, why, you know, why are you talking about Israel's crimes instead of Saudi Arabia, Syria, China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. um, First of all, most of us do. I don't know too many people. uh, Certainly. um, I mean, all one has to do is look at my own Twitter feed. You'll see me talking about, uh, 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 things going on in Africa and Asia, in Europe, in the United States, especially probably in the United States, at least if not more than I do uh, Israel-Palestine. Um, so uh, it isn't true that you, that Israel is just uniquely singled out um, but we have more leverage there. It is more of a responsibility uh, as Americans. I'm not gonna get into the question you know, specifically of Jewish Uh, My my own self as a Jew, uh, there's an obvious connection there and an obvious place where my voice has more more a disproportionate amount of power. So fine. But even if you're not Jewish and not Palestinian, the just the 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 intimate connection of the United States to this issue. Uh, you know, certainly points up a special uh, special interest in Israel. And again, it isn't true that Israel is always uniquely singled out. Um, I mean, I've actually seen repeatedly, we've seen Human Rights Watch, for example, uh, attacked on that basis, Amnesty International attacked on that basis. Well, they're not singling out Israel. They're treating Israel the same way as everyone else. The people who single out Israel when we're talking about international human rights groups is the media. So you get when when Human Rights Watch issues a statement or a report on Israel, it gets a lot more publicity in the United States than when they do so on uh, Uganda or the Democratic Republic of Congo or Sri Lanka or for that matter, England uh, or the United States. They issue reports in all of these countries uh, every single year, but the focus is always on Israel. Um, In in terms of the media, there is a disproportionate uh, attention paid to all criticism of Israel. Um, So that goes in a whole bunch of different directions. Um, There are good reasons why we should pay attention to Israel, Uh, and the most, I think, fundamental is Um, if there's a worse crime across the street, do we actually say that, that we shouldn't pay attention to the crime on this side of the street? Uh, no, we say pay attention to both. Um, it's not a question of either or. And, um, and again, I think the idea that people don't, um, you know, it's true. People don't hear a lot about Western Sahara. That's a question of what's in the media. But you can find there are Americans when they do find out about it do rally um, uh, against Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara. It's not as popular a cause. They that don't lose the their way jobs that happened, for it, but it probably. does happen.
0: I'm sorry. And they probably don't lose their jobs for it. Exactly.
2: So there's you know there's there's many different reasons why this happens, and I I don't agree with the presumption. Uh, that many make that is because progressives or or and 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 we should also point out that Palestine is not just a progressive issue there are many people who support Palestinians who are who in many ways are not at all progressive um just as there are progressives who's who uh are you know as we talk about as we're talking about now who are progressives on other issues but support the Israelis the the pro-Israel side um it is not true that progressives uh don't pay attention to it. Um, it is true that progressives and everybody who supports Palestinians uh, gets more
0: attention paid
2: to them when they take that stance as opposed to when they take another one the point you're
0: making. Right, right. So I want to just end by asking you about, about the potential for change. Um, and, and you know, Mark, you started by talking about Malcolm X, um, um, and I wanted to ask you about the future of Black politics and, and Israel-Palestine. Um, it seems to me that there is a, um, we see again and again, you know, going back to Andrew Young, but again and again, as recently as Raphael Warnock, that, that, that basically um, when um, Black American politicians or other public figures try to draw on their own experience and their own tradition of struggle to, to draw parallels with the situation of Palestinians, the consequences are pretty rough um, yeah. politically. Um, and, and actually, we also see, frankly, that, I, you know, look, I will say a lot of things about the organized American Jewish groups, including APAC. they're not dumb. Um, um, and I actually think that APAC has invested a lot of money in, in cultivating uh, sympathetic relationships with various group people, different groups of peoples of color, including black Americans. And, and, and there are prominent voices who, who will basically parrot an APAC line. Um, uh, and, and, and I wonder, Mark, if you, how, what possibilities you see for um, the, the tradition that you see yourself coming out of breaking in more into the political mainstream, in into Congress and what it would take to make that possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, so first I, I would say part of the, the, the problem that we see um, is that problem, part of, part of how we've gotten here, I'll say that, is because there has been a long history of deep solidarity between Black Americans and Jewish Americans. Um, part of that is political, a, a kind of political sympathy uh, that Black Americans had for uh, the, the Zionist uh, movement uh, in the late 19th century and in the early part of the 20th century. As Black folk here were trying to make sense of uh, our place, and as we were trying to imagine freedom. One of the places that freedom fighters like Mar- from Marcus Garvey to, to Du Bois to others saw was one the possibility they saw was the idea within a nationalist tradition of saying we, we can find we can create our own safe haven right when Marcus Garvey is looking to Liberia when 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 he's thinking about how you can imagine. Um, black freedom outside the context of the United States where and also a pan African vision right where, where African people people of African descent anywhere are all of the same sort. And we can find a safe haven. I mean, this is happening against the backdrop of the first Aliyah. Then, so 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 this is you know, and, 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 and really the second Aliyah, right? So he he's watched from eighteen eighty two right to the right to the beginning of the First World War. Two two waves that have shown the possibility of people who are unsafe because of pogroms, you know, anti-Semitism more broadly, um, find or, or attempt to find a safe haven. And they said, yo, that might work. <laughs> uh, that I, and and so there was a deep sympathy for that. There was also of course, the deep solidarity that came from you know the Niagara movement the NAACP, uh, other freedom struggles watching Jewish Americans stand in deep solidarity with black Americans as we fight for freedom and justice. It wasn't just a kind of imaginative space. it was it was a, people were laying, Jews were laying their bodies on the line for, for black freedom. Mm-hmm. And so there's a deep connection there and, and that can't be ignored. Um, because I think that also plays into the sense of 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 why there should be continued solidarity. Right. 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 Where you begin to see that pivot with Black folk, and this is to answer your question, where you begin to see the pivot with Black folk is not in the in the in the teens or the twenties. It's not even when Ralph Bunch is is is, is negotiating the peace agreement in forty eight or 47, 48, 49 and gets the, the Nobel Prize in fifty. It's it's after the sixty seven war. You know, that's where you start to see the real pushback. It's when you start to see people say, wait a minute, what's ha-? Even Dr. King, who's often, you know, framed as a Zionist, he said, well, wait a minute. I I, I, he, I see they're not giving back. They're not going to give it. He said, I don't care what they say. They're not giving back Jerusalem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He, he said, I don't want to sign these statements and look like I'm completely on board with what's happening, particularly the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, the SNCC issues a statement uh, in, in August of 67. Of um. And of course, Malcolm was always critical. The Panthers became more critical. And so you begin to see this distance between the Black mainstream and the Black left around this question. Um, but it was seen as an anti-imperial struggle. It was seen as um, an, an anti-colonial struggle in many ways. Malcolm's referencing Bandung. Um, the Black Panthers are, are talking about neocolonialism. And so there's still a gap between the mainstream folk and what we see now. What's begun? What's begun to happen over the last decade or two is what was initially a kind of a marginalized discourse, similar to abolish or, or, or defund the police, has moved toward the center. And we're beginning to see more mainstream voices point this out. Well, why? Well, one, I, I think the Ferguson moment is actually extraordinary in that way, right? Because Black Lives Matter was not only anti-state violence, it, it was anti-imperialism. Right. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement was pointing to, to, to the West Bank. They were pointing to Gaza and saying, wait a minute, this is wrong. And, and those delegations that came afterward, that work that came afterward, was key for changing that conversation. So people seeing what the, the, the facts on the ground um, shifts the dialogue. The media representations um, of, of um, Cast Lead and Protective Edge um, made Americans in general say, wait a minute, we're seeing more here than we ever saw before. It changes the discourse. Um, Angela Davis getting, getting awards rescinded, right? People getting fired from networks know, just to choose an example of random yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's just well, what is it about this thing that's making it's drawing attention mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and and so the discourse i think is moving because people are seeing more and knowing more and, and i think our our, our, our struggle is getting more radicalized it's getting more internationalized it's getting more intersectional it's, it's getting thicker right our freedom our, free, our freedom dream is getting more ambitious but there's still Something at, there's always something at stake. Um, when we saw Rashida Tlaib, when we saw Ilhan Omar, when we saw even AOC to a lesser extent, but, but, but certainly in the conversation, inter-Congress, we saw the mainstreaming of that. Of that. Now Jamal Bowman's in. Now, so, so we're seeing more mainstreaming of the conversation, just like defunding, we're seeing more mainstreaming of the conversation. That's what's changing, that's what's changing. Um, but I think what we need to answer the final piece of your question, um, to make that even bigger, so that a Raphael Warnack doesn't have to pivot or take a step back, yeah, right? right? So that uh, it, it is is more mainstreaming of this conversation. How do we do that? Well, I think we have to not just frame this, and this is just my personal opinion. Uh, this isn't in the book, um, and I haven't talked to Mitchell about this, so I don't want to presume he feels the same way. Um, I think I think it's how we frame the struggle. You know, for me, part of my research on Afro-Palestinians has talked about the thing that the thing that makes Afro-Palestinians most vulnerable is not their blackness. It's mm-hmm. not to say there's not anti-blackness in, in Israel and Palestine, it's not to say that Arabs and Palestinians are not racist, it's not to say that is- Israelis can't be racist, it's none of that. But the thing that's primarily subjects them to, 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 to harm is them being Palestinian, right? Afro-Palestinians are getting kicked out of Jerusalem for being Afro, they, it's the Palestinian part. Point mm-hmm. being, there's a, way, there's a way that Palestinians are being racialized within the context of an Israeli state um, as are other groups of people, as are the Beta Israel, as, as are you know other groups are being racialized, as as our as our Mizrahi, Mizrahim, right? Um, there's a way that they're being racialized as Palestinians that that is causing them harm. I think if we, as a global movement, can continue to frame the anti I'm sorry, as we can continue to frame the Palestinian struggle as not just an anti-colonial move or an anti-imperial uh, movement, but as an anti-racist movement, I think we'll be able. To garner a level of solidarity and support in the states that we far more legible to folk, right? So, so it's much easier for Raphael Warnock to say that there's an anti-racist struggle happening here that we need to fight for, just like we did in South Africa or elsewhere. I think if it's framed that way, we'll have a more inclusive net. Now, I'm, I'm there are many people who disagree with me on that on that analysis. So that you know, but but I think for me, that's what's going to happen. If not, we're going to see the slow incremental uh, growth and in possibility of this movement as we're seeing again. You got members of Congress tweeting and critiquing, right? That wouldn't have happened 10 years ago, right? The 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 Even the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warrens who who, who were critical of what was happening in Gaza a little more than they were even in 2016, they did this time, that wouldn't have happened before. No, n- people weren't losing elections because of their position on Netanyahu or on, 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 on the, these sieges, right? So I think the ball is moving in the right direction, but I think the framing is the answer for how black activists in particular and black politicians in particular can can create a kind of legible and acceptable resistance to what's happening.
0: Mm. Mitchell, I want to give you the last word and I want to talk about the, the Jewish community's role in this, in, in the possibility for, for change. Um, you know, you and I both labored in these vineyards and um, on the one hand, you can say that there's a Jewish kind of civil war in the Israel. On the other hand, it's a pretty one-sided civil war in a lot of ways, in terms of who has the ammunition, right? Um, You know, and and, and I don't necessarily, you know, progressives are always prone to this view that because we believe something is morally right, that history is going to move in our direction, right? Necessarily, and I I don't necessarily know that we are that much further along than we were necessarily uh, 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 10 years ago in terms of the balance of power inside the Jewish community. And so I wonder when you think about the possibilities for change, first of all, how much do you think the change will be led by, um, by American Jews? Or do you think, frankly it will mostly have to be led outside the, 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 uh, of the American Jewish community? And, and what do you see as the possibilities that, um, that, that this, you, know, very powerful and sophisticated well let me let me, just, how it seems to me part of the problem is that, as you were talking about the the connection to Israel in a certain narrative is, is so central to identity for so many American Jews that you change that policy conversation and it leaves a huge void in who they are. And there's not obvious, you know, since there's not obviously, there's not a lot of obvious things to fill that. Um, And so I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you see as the Jewish community, as the role of American Jews in the possibility for change.
2: Yes, it's such a simple. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad
0: Mitchell got that question. I'm so glad Mitchell got that
1: question.
2: Right, right. Um, <laughs> Sixty <I, seconds> less. <laughs> I think um, you know. I think. I think the. Um, I, I think the, the the reality is that that the second part of your question kind of answers the first. I don't think that um, the American Jewish community, because so much of uh, of Jewish identity now is is centered around Israel, because. You know, really. I, I remember this—a uh, a Jewish uh, anti-occupation organizer about a decade, even more, maybe maybe two decades ago asked me. Said, "If I'm not, if I'm not pro-Israel, and I'm not, and I'm and I'm completely secular. So, what does it mean that I'm Jewish? What What does that mean? I didn't really have an answer for him, and it's hard for me personally to answer that because I was raised so I was raised Orthodox. So being Jewish is an integral part of, of who I am that I can't lose, and and it isn't tied up with Israel. Um, it it it's it, it. I may no longer, I may be completely secular, I may have abandoned that, but it doesn't change my upbringing. So it's it's a little hard, you know, it's a little harder for me to directly address that question. But it's clear to me that um, this sense of Israel being the focal point of Jewish life in the twenty first century for so many, not all, but for so many Jews, um, is going to mean that yeah, the Jewish community is not going to uh, is not going to entirely turn on this. It's not going to uh, uh, it's not going to be part of the solution. Um, I, I, I hate to say that. And, and those of us in the progressive um, progressive on Palestine part of the Jewish community uh, are going to have to uh, understand that we are always going to be attacked by our fellow Jews. It's it, that will that will be forever. Uh, as long as this as long as this conflict exists, um, no matter where what the twists and turns that is going to happen, because it does, as you point out, threaten uh, what is defined in the 21st century as Jewish identity. I think that what we're seeing among some progressive Jews and I think Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, um, and this is all really, I have to be honest, happened since I left and probably wouldn't have happened if I continued to have my personal kind of influence on that organization that I had when I was co-director. Um, they have really led the way in creating a uh, a progressive Jewish identity that incorporates Jewish spirituality, uh, Jewish tradition—you um, know, both both um, ancient and more modern—into uh, something that I think I really do see developing in the Jewish community as a new sort of Jewish identity. But but it's going to take decades to really develop as a powerful identity, mm-hmm. and uh, this conflict we don't have decades. Um, I also think that while this particular political moment is pretty grim for this issue, um, largely because uh, almost everybody who doesn't, who isn't directly involved, in other words, Israelis and even to some extent Israelis have kind of put the a question of the occupation on a much lower uh, priority, at a much lower priority than they have in the past. So it's really Palestinians who are who are trying to keep this this issue afloat, but it it's just not um it, it it's not uh it, there isn't much momentum globally politically behind this issue um so i think that's going to be a challenge right now and i think what's happening in this period uh, is that apac Democratic majority for Israel, which is the same organization functionally, um, and other organizations are already starting to, you know, sort of uh, try to take advantage of this moment to build up, particularly among liberals, more and more supports. We're seeing it with like Richie Torres in New York. We're yeah. seeing it with, with, you know, with what happened with Raphael Warnock in Georgia, uh, where he uh, where he uh, had to had to really strongly modify views that he had expressed in the past, which were should not have been controversial. We're seeing with Andrew Yang now and what he's doing in his running in New York. Um, and we're gonna see a lot more of that with the push for the IHRA uh, definition of antisemitism to be used everywhere that it is completely inappropriate to use. So um, it's, it, it is a grim moment, but at the same time, there's also unprecedented Jewish political power for a better A better uh, a better future. When I helped get JVP off the ground back in the late 90s and early part of the century, um, you know, part of my thinking was we need a radical Jewish voice that is coherent with a a sound political strategy, good, you know, a, a good support base. But but that is really offering a, a sharp, sharp critique of U.S. and Israeli policy. At the same time, I also felt like JVP obviously was not this organization, but we also needed a more moderate centrist sort of organization that could work D.C. better, that could do that. Well, we have that now. J Street exists and J Street, as much as many more left wing Jews really don't get along with J Street and J Street with them. Um, those both those aspects need to work at least on parallel tracks, if not together. Um, and they are in a certain way doing that. I think more of that is developing. So there's more progressive Jewish political power, I think, than there used to be in the past. And that can be uh helpful and decisive. But um, but but the but the reality is that um you know the There is not going to be people are not going to concede the idea that Israel can be a truly democratic state um, uh, until it actually happens and they see the Jews don't get annihilated for it. Because that let's face it, that is what motivates much of the Jewish community you know whenever they argue about uh, uh, about ending the occupation uh, or their argument against a single democratic state, whatever that argument may be, it always ends up with Jews all the Jews in Israel get annihilated that's right. always what's at the end of that argument and until they realize that's not going to happen, I don't see that position changing, but I don't think it's necessary for a resolution either
0: yeah, yeah. Um- uh, that's right. You know, I, I have to say, I had a depressing moment just a few weeks ago. On my 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 son, who just turned 15, told me that he was called a self-hating Jew, and I said, "Well, uh, by a kid, someone in his class." And I said, uh, "Well, you know, what was that experience like?" And he said, "You know, she was the prettiest girl in the class." <laughs> So, uh, so it was uh, you know, for a teenage boy, that was uh, I think that was the part that that was really wrong. That was the crushing part. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think that was that was that was more than the ideology, but um, um, um but um no, you mean you're raising and I think these are some of the really important challenges that I think you too as a pair are raising, which is to say, how do we how do we have that struggle inside the Jewish community without sending the message that somehow, you know, only, only Jewish people have the right to engage in this, or uh, and 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 how do we how do we um, uh, how do we how do we try to cultivate an environment in which people can respectfully, uh, people can feel more emboldened to be engaged in this conversation. Um, and how do we? I, I think I think that there is an attitude among many Jews that essentially, um, you know if it's good that non-Jews feel afraid of being in this conversation because goodness knows what might happen if they felt comfortable being part of it. you know. Um, again, which has to do with all of this, I think these, this trauma, but also this weaponization of that trauma uh, to, 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 to deploy uh, power in, in, in really often ugly ways. And I, you know, I have to say for me, the notion that because Jews earned some moral capital, not Jews, but certain Jews, earned moral capital because they were involved in social justice struggles then other Jews right therefore have the right to take that cop capital whether it's be black people or germans or anyone else and basically say we now re- demand that you use that you honor that legacy by supporting injustice it seems to me it's like the most warped thing you could possibly imagine, you know, and yet it happens constantly. Anyway, I, I just tremendously admire the, what you both are doing. Uh, the book is called, uh, Progressive, uh, Except Palestine. Um, uh, uh, sorry, except, the book is called, Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. I hope everyone reads it and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for, having, for having us. For the work you always do, man, we appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for everything you're doing, Peter. My pleasure, can be continued, I hope. Take care. Bye-bye.